Shem Hashem Naseh V'Natzliach, Shiur Torah, Bukhim Abayim, we're here in a special Shiur, Chanukah Baruch Hashem, Shavua Tov, Chanukah Sameach, to everybody, we're, Vezot Hashem, going to take a little bit of break from our series of the Jewish Ashkafa, and try B'Siyat Dishmaya to connect certain things that uh, are happening during this great time of the year, during Hanukkah, to our day-to-day life. Uh, of course, always Torah, there's always new insights. Uh, the Hashem will bring them to light. Uh, tonight's uh, shiur will be for a refuah shlema for Rabbanit Levana Bat Sara, Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sara Bat Anat, Avimori David Ben Asriya, Doris Bajora. Orit Pat Ilana and Sarah Bat Sausan, and also for Atzlachar Abba for Marsha Bat Julie, Ayla Bat Marsha, Samuel Ben Marsha, Sefas Ben Marsha, Alexander Ben Marsha, Louis Ben Marsha, Shaul Ben Farzane, Itro Ben Avraham, David Ben Asriya, Oshri Ben Doris, Gary Ben Doris, Elad Ben Doris, and Amir Ben Shahin, and all of Am Yisrael, Bezot Hashem, will have. A refuah shlema and atzlacharaba, and of course all of the righteous Noahides that continue to support the Torah and do the will of Hashem. So, with that being said, we have uh, each year we get to this time, we uh, light the menorah, we uh, celebrate, get uh, an extra few pounds added to our weight with the latkes and the sufganiyot uh, and all the other oily delicious food um, but the question is really do we know what we're celebrating do we know what we're celebrating now of course we've talked about this in the past in regards to celebrating Hanukkah uh, quite frankly the, um, the the holiday itself is a uh, surely a cause to celebrate just the fact that we're still here um, and we've talked about the fact of how Many of the, uh, you know, the changes, the uh, psychological changes that took place during that time a couple of thousand years ago are perhaps still affecting us today, uh, and it's time for us to do tshuva, but uh, tonight we're going to try to go a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper into what actually happened a little over 2,000 years ago. The whole uh, miracle of Hanukkah is uh is not something that uh is speculated among the jewish people but rather something that uh, we have precise details of as the um as the rambam in uh in his mishneh torah in uh, in chapter three he writes the following he writes the following now as a side note hanukkah took place in the year 3596 from creation, which is uh, 2,186 years ago. Uh, and uh, But the Greek persecutions started several years beforehand, meaning that the whole story of Hanukkah is not something that happened over a week uh, or even a couple of months, but it took a little while. So... The Rambam discusses this in Chot Hanukkah, in chapter 3, and he says the following. 
in the era of the second temple, like I said, 2100 years ago, the Greek kingdom issued decrees against the Jewish people, attempting to nullify their fate and refusing to allow them to observe the Torah and its commandments. They extended their hands against their property and their daughters and entered the sanctuary, wrought havoc within and made the holy articles impure. The Jews suffered great difficulties from them and they oppressed them greatly until God, the God of our ancestors had mercy upon them, delivered them from their hands and saved them. The sons of the Hashmonaim, the high priests, overcame them, slew them and saved the Jews from their hand. Here, if you notice, the language of the Rambam is uh, very precise to first and foremost make sure to know that it is God uh, that uh, had mercy on us and delivered the, uh, the victory. But uh, in a uh, physical sense, as far as how we uh, relate to the world, what actually transpired is that the sons of the Hashmonaim, uh, the Maccabees, uh, were the ones that actually slew the, uh, the Greeks and saved the Jews from their hand. They appointed a king from the priests and sovereignty returned to Israel for more than 200 years until the destruction of the second temple. The second halacha continues as follows. When the Jews overcame their enemies and destroyed them, they entered the sanctuary. This was the 25th of Kislev. Some actually say that the uh, the um, Rabenus Nisim uh, says that the victory took place actually on the 24th and on the t 25th is when they actually entered uh, uh, the sanctuary. So in essence, the 24th, we ended the war. That's uh, when we rested from the wars. That's why uh, it's hinted in the, in the name Hanukkah. It's uh, hinted Hanu, meaning uh, rest. Uh, Ka, uh, Chafhei, stands for 25. So they rested on the 25th. So the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the Rambam continues, and he says that uh, they entered the sanctuary. That was the 25th of Kislev. They could not find any pure oil in the sanctuary, with the exception of a single cruise. It contained enough oil to burn for merely one day. They lit the arrangement of candles from it for eight days until they could crush olives and produce pure oil. According to the sages of that generation, they ordained that these eight days, which begin with the 25th of Kislev, should be commemorated as days of happiness and praise of God. Candles should be lit in the evening at the entrance of the houses on each and every one of these nights to publicize and reveal the miracle. These days are called Hanukkah. It's forbidden to eulogize and fast on them as on the days of Purim. Lighting the candles on these days is a rabbinic mitzvah, like reading the Megillah in Purim. So here we see that the, uh, the holiday itself is not uh, something that uh, is a, uh, we're not certain about. We have clarity. We have certainty. Uh, in fact, even the... Uh, the custom of eating uh, sufganiyot uh, is mentioned by Rabenu Maimon, 
Rabbeinu Maimon is uh, the Rambam's father, who was one of the Gedolei Ado. He says, uh, and this is 900 years ago, he writes that uh, the custom of eating sufganiyot is an ancient custom, meaning that well even before than his day. Uh, we're talking about well over a thousand, fifteen hundred years ago. So, Am Yisrael would already eat the sufganiyot that uh, you uh, you eat today. So, the whole Chag of, of, of Hanukkah is a, a very, very important day uh, for Am Yisrael, a very important week. But still, there's many questions. There are many questions in, that Chachamim toil for the last couple of thousand years and give, of course, different answers uh, about why we do what we do. For example, one of the uh, most famous questions is, why is it being celebrated for eight days? Why not seven days? Or perhaps nine days. Why eight days? Now, of course, some people will say, yeah, why not 15? Why not 17? Why not 32? No, no, no. When the Chachamim ask questions, they don't just throw numbers just because it's a different number, like some fools do, where uh, they just want to be different. No. The reason why we're asking, why isn't it seven days? And why isn't it nine days? is because seven days is technically how long the miracle was, if that's what the holiday is for. We had the, uh, uh, the candles lit for, uh, for eight days, but we already had oil for one day, which means that technically the miracle was seven days. So shouldn't the holiday be seven days? Or better yet, it should be for nine days. Why nine days? Because we know that it's already a... Uh, uh, the sages enacted that uh, in the exile, the uh, we keep the holidays for one extra day, just like we do with Pesach or Sukkot, uh, and uh, we do uh, with uh, with other times during the year. When we're in the exile, we add an extra day because of the issues of time that uh, we had back then. And even though we no longer have those issues of time of knowing exactly when the holiday enters and when it ends. Um, because we obviously have atomic clocks and things of that nature today, once something becomes a uh, old custom among Am Yisrael, we do not change it. So the uh, Yom Tov Sheni, the second Yom Tov, as the Gemara in Masechet Moed Katan discusses extensively, is there to stay. It's not going anywhere until Mashiach Tzitkenu comes. But uh, nonetheless, the uh, question would be, so if we have a second Yom Tov in the exile, we're here in America. There are people, obviously many Jews all over Europe uh, and uh, all over Asia, all over the world. There's Australia. All over the world there are Jews. Why aren't they celebrating Hanukkah for nine days, adding one day to, to the uh, eight days that we have in Israel? So that's another question. Or if you're going to say, wait, but it's a, uh, then it would be uh, uh, different than everybody else. Exactly. It would be different than everybody else because we have that extra day. So these are some of the questions the Chachamim ask. And there was actually a uh, book that uh, came out some years ago that uh, had over 500 different answers to these questions from different Chachamim over the last thousand plus years, discussing them extensively. Now, one of the things that uh, you see when you learn Torah is that each time you read the words of the sages, you see that there's a little bit of a, another tit bit of information added that adds another piece to the puzzle. 
adds another piece to the puzzle. And that's why the Gemara in Yerushalmi, Masechet uh, Pe'ah, says that the words of Torah are poor in one place and rich in another. Meaning that you'll have certain things, certain statements of the Torah, certain subjects of the Torah, where in one place that subject is discussed with minimal fashion. There's, let's say, you know, one or uh, two sentences about it. But in another place in the Torah, that very same subject is, is discussed much more extensively, but not the same exact words, different words. And then the way you learn Torah, the way you learn what's called the sugya, is that you learn the uh, all of the different statements that are said across the board, whether it's the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Poskim, the, uh, the Midrashim, and so on and so forth. So we don't, uh, we don't ever learn Torah just from a single place. We take all of the different aspects of the diamond and combine it into one, and that's how we learn a sugyan. This is why I always tell people that ask me the questions about what do I think about such and such rabbi that made a statement about a subject that was contrary to what I said. Generally speaking, you know, usually you see the people that say other things, where they said it in a passing fashion, meaning like they uh, just uh, said whatever statement they said in passing. It wasn't an extensive shiur. It wasn't an extensive uh, discussion. It was just saying something in passing, showing that the either they have not uh, studied the subject or they simply don't want to discuss it, especially the issue of genom and punishment. It's a very uncomfortable issue for people to discuss for whatever reason. And uh, usually when people uh, talk about the topic, they minimize it. I personally recommend for people not to discuss it at all if they're not going to study the subject and say the truth. But nonetheless, anytime you hear somebody uh, mentioning this particular topic, usually you see that it's very, very different than what you've heard in our shulim. And the reason why is because, like I said, either most people have uh, simply not studied the subject extensively to know the details, or they simply don't want to study the issue or, or teach the issue. Uh, but generally speaking, if you read any sugya in the Torah, whether it's the issue about Genom or issue about heaven or issue about Shabbat or, or Brit Milah or anything else, you'll see that there are volumes and volumes and volumes of works written about these topics and uh, you could uh, see it for yourself. But uh, sometimes these particular topics are discussed in a uh, smaller fashion or quoted in smaller fashion in different places. And the way that a Chacham actually gets to an actual conclusion in order to write that bigger book is by taking all of those little tidbits and combining them together into a complete idea. So with Chanukah, we see that all of the sages that discuss this particular topic of why the days are the days, why it's eight days, not seven, not nine, not anything else, we see that each and every single one of them always adds a little bit more titbits of information, another little bit of information. And one of the main things that I found fascinating is that the common knowledge that we have is that there were three decrees that the Greeks uh, uh, decreed on the Jewish people to torture us. Here we see that the, uh, the Rambam is actually mentioning more than three, but there are three Famous decrees that the Greeks, uh, led by Antiochus, Imachshimo, Vezichro, uh, where they wanted us to uh, cancel Shabbat, no longer observing Shabbat, no longer observing Rosh Chodesh, 
and no longer doing a brit mila. That's a uh, one of the uh, things that they. Uh, these are the three things that they wanted. Which, by the way, reminds me. Side note: Bezot Hashem Refuah for Batya Bat Sarah and Tinok Ben Batya. So uh, now you have yourself a. Uh, a uh, little bit of information but then when you look at the rambam you see wait a minute hold on a second there's a little bit more than just brit milah a little bit more than just a uh rosh chodesh we see there's more things they extended their hands against their property against their daughters uh they went into the sanctuary they caused havoc you see already there's a little bit more there's a little bit more that uh is happening here so we have to dig deeper now when we dig deeper we'll find actually that there were 22 decrees 22 decrees no less passed by the evil Greeks on the Jewish people and uh, Rabbeinu Yitzhak Ratzvi Shichye, he actually uh, um, put the list together which we'll go over now it's very possible that this may require more than one shiur, but Baruch Hashem, Chanukah is eight days. We have a few shiurim uh, scheduled for this week, so we'll uh, Bezat Hashem try to cover all of them and try to see where we stand. Not necessarily just where we stand with knowledge about these decrees, but really where we stand in the world as a Jewish people, and has anything changed? Have these decrees been nullified as a result of the uh, win? by the Maccabees, by the Hashmonaim, by the Jewish people, are these decrees still valid? Quite frankly, another bigger question that uh, Rabbi Ephraim uh, asked in Ashiu is, do we know why we're celebrating Hanukkah? Because if we look at some of the decrees, we'll see that some of our brethren are actually actively electively and willingly practicing these decrees still to this day which means that if the greeks or the mityavnim which were the jews that joined the greeks just like the jews that joined the nazis 70 plus years ago to kill their own brothers to torture their own brothers this was not a new thing there were Mityavnim. There were Mityavnim in Nazi Germany. There were Mityavnim in Yevtsekzia of the uh, in, uh, in in Russia, going after the Torah world. There were uh, Mityavnim in uh, the Spanish Inquisition. There were Mityavnim, and uh, of course, throughout all of history, including Egypt, and obviously, needless to say, in Greece, you had Mityavnim. What were these Mityavnim? Mityavnim were the Jewish people that chose to adopt the Greek laws, Greek lifestyle, not because somebody put a sword to their neck, but rather because they saw this as better. Just like the uh, reformers uh, did when they first started with a uh, uh, Mendelssohn, Shem Reshaim Yerkav, who was himself a uh, orthodox rabbi who told people be a jew in your house and a uh, secular person outside a regular person outside unfortunately just today i had a orthodox jew a young man 
uh, in his twenties, uh, uh, tell me that when he went to shul today and uh, was discussing with somebody about how he's becoming more and more religious and he's trying to serve Hashem even better, one of the older Jews uh, in the kilah told him, "Listen, you can be an Orthodox Jew in your house as much as you want, but outside, stay secular." This is no different than Mendelssohn from 200 years ago inside a modern Orthodox shul. So you see that this mentality is not a new mentality and also not a forgotten mentality. It's still practiced today heavily in many communities. Uh, and not just the modern Orthodox community. You also have it in the uh, 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 Hasidic community. You have it in the Sephardi community. You have it uh, everywhere. There is a... Uh, uh, some type of Datan Ve'aviram or a Korach or even an Esav and an Amalek in every community, unfortunately. Uh, but it's for us it's to, to, uh, to identify who's Amalek and who's not. As the uh, Yaakov Christ to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Atzileni na miyad miyad Esav, save me from the hand of my brother, save me from Esav. Why save me from the hand of my brother, save me from Esav? Because when Esav looks like Esav and he's a Nazi, he's a Greek, he's a, uh, some type of, uh, uh, some type of uh, enemy that's uh, with a sword or a gun or, or some type of weapon in his hand. It's clear to me, but I'm not as worried about him as I am worried about Achi, when he looks like he's my brother. Save me from the one that looks like he's my brother. Why? Because the one that looks like he's my brother, sometimes he wears a kippah, sometimes he even has a beard, and sometimes he's even called rabbi. Therefore, he's much more dangerous than they, when Esav looks like Esav. And that's one of the biggest problems that uh, we have in the world, not just today, but throughout all of history, where you have some of our brothers and sisters, unfortunately, join Esav, but continue to remain among us. No different than when the uh, Christian missionaries who uh, infiltrated the Jewish community and were exposed recently by Benenu uh, organization and uh, and others, Yad uh, uh, also did. Uh, you see that these Christian missionaries were living as Orthodox Jews in Israel. Uh, they sell coin Rasha or the Rashaim in uh, in a uh, Arizona. Uh, the Dawsons who uh, changed their name to Isaacsons. Uh, of course, all of these people want 100% Esav, but pretending to be Achim, pretending to be our brothers, pretending to be Jews. And of course, how did they enter? Because there was another one that was pretending for even longer that helped them. None of these people enter the Jewish communities by themselves. They all have a helping hand from somebody, somebody that actually is our brother, as far as actually a real Jew, but unfortunately, still an Esav, still an Amalek, still a piece of garbage that is a, uh, a, committing treason against his own people, like this Aminov character from Arizona, and I'm sure quite a few other characters that are helping others in Eretz Yisrael and other places. So you have all types of criminals, spiritual criminals, and even legal criminals, uh, secular law criminals, that are uh, walking amongst us, and some of them are rabbis, some of them are regular, uh, average Jews that have a, a beard and a hat. Some don't even have a beard and don't have a hat, but nonetheless, they're advocates for for Esav much more than they're advocates for uh, you know for the Torah itself for Yaakov. 
Uh, and it's very, very important for us to know that these things exist and stop living uh, like the uh, like uh, the bird, the batyana, uh, the, uh, uh, that uh, puts sticks its head uh, under the uh, under the ground anytime it uh, sees danger it doesn't want to deal with. Uh, we have to stop pretending like the uh, the world is full of roses and and and, uh, and uh, strawberries. Olam uh, lo The world is not uh, strawberries. The world is not uh, a uh, an easy world to deal with, and people have to stop pretending like uh, there there isn't trouble ahead. But the key is to know that once we do know that there is trouble, we can prepare for it, and if we prepare for it, we can actually do well. Unfortunately, Abu Karim, for the last couple of thousand years, we've had mityavnim, we've had Jewish people that have become part of Amalek, part of Erevrav, and still remain among us, and some have done it willingly some have done it by ignorance alone they simply don't know that there's something better available to them and these 22 decrees were something that the Chachamim discussed in many Sfarim I'll quote some of them Be'ezad Hashem that uh, really we have to identify first and foremost where we stand with these decrees today ourselves and second of all, that if the Mityavnim came to our communities today, which one of our synagogues and political parties would they join? Would they join your shul? Because they see that your shul is more in line with their beliefs? Or would they join a different shul? If the Mityavnim are in line with the lefty liberal promotion of uh, homosexuality lgbt and abc and efg and all types of uh, uh filthy other things that they can create and try to uh, use euphemisms to mi- minimize them if it's going to be one of these people that likes lgbt likes the homosexuality and he sees the your shul also likes homosexuality has a rabbi that says that homosexuality although it is a sin it is not such a big deal and we should not uh, make it uh, such a uh, such a horrible thing we could still accept them with open hearts and love and make it as if this is just one mitzvah that they're sinning just like the rest of us are sinning with one mitzvah at least if this Greek, this Mityavin, sees himself fit perfectly into your shul. The question that we have, the question that Rabbi Ephraim asked is, why are you celebrating Hanukkah? Because really the whole celebration of Hanukkah, at least until now we thought, was that we were celebrating that uh, we won the war. We won the war and we had a, a miracle. But after we complete the review of these decrees, I think we'll come up with a different reason of why we celebrate Hanukkah. We still have very much a reason to celebrate Hanukkah, but I don't think it's because we won the war. And you judge for yourself and see if you agree or you have a different opinion. Either way, Bezot Hashem, Na'asev and 
So, the Chachamim talk about how there were decrees by the Greeks who were people that believed in many gods and simply could not coexist with a nation that believed in a single god. Their gods needed them. Our god doesn't need us. Their gods could do individual jobs and that's it. Our god does everything and doesn't sleep, doesn't rest. Their God are elective, where you can believe in them and you'll get, according to them, rewarded, or not believe in them and nothing would happen. Perhaps you'll have a stronger God instead. Our God, whether you believe in him or you don't believe in him, doesn't change his viability, his reality, his significance, but nonetheless, it does change yours. Because if you believe in him and you follow him, you'll get rewarded for it eternally. And if you don't, you'll get punished eternally. And yes, Judaism not only believes in eternal punishment, we are the source of the teachings of eternal punishment, as it's mentioned in both the written and the oral Torah. Now, the Greeks could not coexist with such a people. They simply hated the fact that the Jewish people tried to be holy. They hated the fact that while the Greeks felt that you needed to live in this world and this world alone, you had to benefit out of this world physically in every way that you possibly can, fulfill every desire that you have, even if your desire is against human nature. And they pushed this on the Jewish people more than they did any other people. Number one, because other people didn't necessarily reject it as much as the Jews, because they didn't have necessarily much to fight for. But secondly, because the Jews reminded the Greeks, as they do all of the heretics, that they're wrong. And so long as there's a Jew in the world, there has to be an Esav that hates him. Now, there is a Megillah that is called Megillat Bnei Chashmonai, the Megillah of the sons of the Chashmonai. It's also known as Megillat Antiochus. And there you'll see the, uh, the story of what happened with the Jewish people, the decrees, the Maccabees. And in Megillat Bnei Choshmonai, it mentions that there were three major decrees four times. Four times it's mentioned these three evil decrees that were passed on the Jewish people. The cancellation of Shabbat, cancellation of Rosh Chodesh, and the prohibition of the Brit Milah. Now, we ask ourselves, why did they pick those mitzvot? Why Shabbat? And not tefillin? 
וואי ראש חודש, עינת יום כיפור. וואי ברית מילה, עינת כשרות. And only after you review the details of each and every single one of those decrees will you understand why this and not others. And quite frankly understand that it's not that they just pick those, it's that we pick those. We as, as the, the, the Jewish sages, our forefathers, pick those three as the main three to highlight. Even though there were 19 other ones, because these were the three major ones that, in essence, whoever fell for those three, typically fell for the rest of the 22. Whoever held up and withstood the test and did not start violating Shabbat, does not start driving on Shabbat, did not start a, uh, 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 skipping the Brit Milah for their kid, out of the, the uh, because they were scared of the Greeks and did not honor the decree of uh, not uh, calculating the Rosh Chodesh, if you were able to withstand the test, typically you were one of the Maccabees. But if you didn't, typically the person became one of the Mitiavnim and adopted the rest of the laws. Now, the mentality of the Greeks was not a new mentality. In fact, the mentality of the Greeks began with Esav himself, Esav Uedom. The Torah says that Esav, he is Edom. And uh, Edom is a, one of the way it represented itself in the world, was the Greek Empire. It's also the Roman Empire, and it's of course the Nazis as well, and others. But nonetheless, Esav, on the day that he uh, sold his firstborn rights, to Yaakov, the Torah says that uh, the, the, the sages say in the Midrash that five sins he made that day. Five sins, meaning that one was desecrating the firstborn right. He also had a gilui arayot immorality, heresy against the uh, uh, resurrection of the dead and the uh, and olamaba. Uh, and also committed murder. So we see that the Esav made these five sins, and his descendants built off of that, where their decrees, as we'll see today, all have a connection to those five sins. The mentality of Esav was based on the verse of, in, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 23, eat and drink because tomorrow uh, we will die meaning live for today the the uh, you only live once mentality that you have in the world unfortunately today that people just do whatever they want because they believe you only live once this type of type of belief is heretical it's antithetical to the Torah because we not only believe in a resurrection of the dead, of the righteous dead, but also we believe in an eternal world, in a world that uh, life begins after this life. What kind of life a person's gonna have after this life obviously is determined based on their actions in this life, where Adam la'amal yulad, a person came to this world to toil, 
and uh, toiling meaning not work on Wall Street or for the sanitation department or uh, or uh, collecting bitcoins but rather a person came to this world to collect mitzvot a person came to this world in order to serve Hashem through the natural world so yes he has to work she has to work everybody has to uh, uh, get educated everybody has to uh, uh, find ways to make a living in an honest way but through that life they also have to make sure that God is a priority in their life and not just the theory of God but rather the belief system the religion that HaKadosh Baruch Hu put into this world called Judaism when the Torah was given to us at Mount Sinai it wasn't just given to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai but rather it was given to the entire world and the entire world has to comply both Jews and Gentiles in different aspects the Jews have to fulfill the entire Torah and all of its uh, commandments that apply to the Jews and the Gentiles have to fulfill the Torah by complying with the commandments that apply to the Gentiles mainly the uh, seven Noahide laws and everything that's common sense now the uh mentality of a Jew needs to be or anybody really needs to be where I'm here to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu while I work while I get married while I have kids while I give uh uh, uh education uh, and rearing to my children while I uh do everything that I do I have to have God in mind and the mentality of Esav was you only live once go and just enjoy yourself whatever physical uh, pleasure you can get get it whatever uh, 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 mental stimulation you can get get it whatever monetary uh, benefit you can get get it meaning live as if there are no consequences because you only live once and uh, these are the types of people that Akadoshba who hates as the prophet says in Isaiah now the uh, Greeks try to implement the this type of belief of you only live once into the Jewish world because so long as the Jews existed they reminded the world that there is an eternal life there is one God and there is a consequence for every single action that you do and therefore more than any other nation more than any other people the Greeks focused all of their resources to try to destroy the Jewish people meaning the greatest civilization in size and war power in the world went against one of the smallest and this is not the first or the last time this happened that in itself shows that the Jewish people are the chosen people because no other people have had the greatest civilizations target them lose the battle cease to exist and they live to tell the story not once or the countless times that the Jewish people have had but you see that the Assyrians the Babylonians the uh, Romans the Greeks the Nazis the Spaniards the Turks all of these different civilizations were at their time the strongest in war power the strongest in control the strongest in wealth uh strongest in every aspect but instead of just continuing to live their lives and continue conquering the rest of the world 
they focused on a small people located on a small piece of land smaller than the state of new york and take all of their war power all of their weapons all of their money all of their resources just to destroy these people and of course akadosh Baruch Hu destroyed that great civilization made them into a distant memory in the history books and the small people that suffered dearly lived to tell the story until today this is really the story of Am Yisrael this in itself proves that Am Yisrael is the chosen people and the world was created for them but of course you'll still have anti-semitics and people that are delusional that are sometimes self-hating Jews that don't think that the Jewish people are unique and quite frankly don't even want to believe that the Jewish people are unique or uh, that they're different than everybody else why because if they are unique that means there has to be a reason and the only reason you can find is the Torah and if the Torah is the reason then you have to ask yourself why is the Torah a book a book that was written 3,300 years ago why is that strong enough to make a people so uh everlasting obviously this book is of divine nature and if the book is of divine nature obviously i have to read what it says and follow what it says and if i have to follow what it says and what it says is contrary to my lifestyle where that book says that homosexuality is forbidden that book says that immorality in general is forbidden that book says that eating non-kosher food is forbidden desecrating shabbat is, is a is a uh, is a sin that will uh, uh will cut me off from a eternity of good and uh, replace it with an eternity of bad that book says a lot of things that are contrary to my uh pleasant seeking life then of course unless a person is ready to change he's not going to be willing to do it so you see it's that when you believe that the Jewish people are chosen you can't just leave it at that you have to ask yourself why the Greeks asked themselves why are the Jewish people chosen they found out it's because of the Torah so rather than change their lives rather than change their mentalities they simply decided to eliminate the people of the book this unfortunately is a uh, not the first or the last time and there are even people today that try to do it all types of heretics try to do it there's even a uh, guy that um, came to a lecture came to a lecture by one of the uh, key of rabbis in Eretz Israel who told the story directly to Rav Ephraim uh, and he said that after the lecture both uh, the husband and the wife came up to uh, the rabbi who uh, had a lecture that uh, was discussing different proofs different scientific proofs different biblical proofs that the Torah is of divine nature and that it had to be given by the hand of God it's not something that some person wrote both the written Torah and the oral Torah and there are countless proofs uh, that show it after this uh, lecture took place the uh, the woman said to the rabbi rabbi i'm honestly amazed this lecture changed my life and especially the part where you talked about how the western wall was promised by kadosh to never fall that i did the calculation in my head was so shocking to me 
that from now on, I'm going to start observing Shabbat and continue to learn and build from there. And the rabbi asked the woman, what about your husband? Did he get the same impact? And the woman looks down in embarrassment. And the rabbi says, what's wrong? He didn't like it? She says, no, he also got shocked by the same exact proof. Only he, instead of taking on the mitzvah of Shabbat, he says he's going to try to blow up the Western Wall and prove the Torah wrong. Now, of course, some of us are laughing inside and some of us are crying. But the reality is, Rabotai, is that some people would rather blow up the Western Wall than observe one single Shabbat. Some people would rather do all types of vile things than observe the Torah giving themselves all the excuses in the world of why they can't and why it's not this and why it's not that and it's such people that you feel bad you feel bad for such people why because they don't even realize how thick the klipa is on them how difficult it's going to be for them to do tshuva even if they wanted to do tshuva now the uh the greeks tried to eliminate the whole notion of an eternity from the thought process of the jewish people because they knew that if they hurt the jewish people they'll conquer the entire world not just physically but also spiritually so the first decree that they wanted to that they passed was the forbidden of uh, a prohibition of observing shabbat the reason why rabotai is because shabbat is a holy day all civilizations since the beginning of time had a seven day week with 24 hours there's no civilization that uh, you can speak of that had eight days or nine days or three days everybody had virtually the same uh the same seven day week which in itself is a proof that the torah is of divine nature because there really isn't a reason there really isn't a reason for the week to have seven days if not for the torah and you can say yes but the world rotates in a certain fashion and you can calculate it's 24 hours yes but who said that the 24 hours needs to be 24 hours somebody could have simply calculated it for me to be 12 hours or three hours or three thousand millichus or pikachus or tatachus why choose 24 hours needless to say even if you all arrive at the same conclusion that there is 24 hours why end it with seven days why not just have a simply a eternal clock a clock that doesn't end first day second day eighth day ninth day 15th day 150th day 190th day 190,566th day and on and why not just continuously count from the beginning till forever or better yet just say one day every week is one day and just simply no separation whatsoever the only reason is the Torah that's the only reason why there's seven days a week but the reason why the Jewish people keep the Shabbat it's not just because there's seven days a week because that technically is observed by all civilizations and all people the reason why we observe the shabbat is because akadosh bohu made the shabbat for us as the gemarayin masechet shabbat says that akadosh bohu 
before we got to Mount Sinai, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe Rabbeinu, go and tell Am Yisrael that I have a matana gedola bebet knezai, v'shabat shma. I have a very big gift in my treasure chest, and the name of it is Shabbat, and I'm going to give it to you. Even before the Torah was given to Am Yisrael, we received the Shabbat. And this gift of the Shabbat is the gift that HaKadosh Baruch Hu already thought of in creation that He's going to give to us. So much so, that the Gemara says that each day in Parashat Bereshit, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu completed the creation after each day, where Chachamim say, in essence, the creation of everything took an instant, he Bereshit Barai Elokim et HaShamayim ve'et Aretz, that the HaKadosh uh, Baruch Hu created out of nothing everything, but then everything else after that was a Yetzirah, where he innovated the creation that he already created initially. So you see that the words that are being used after the initial creation, that everything was came from nothing, is one word, and there's a different word used for the rest of the creation taking place during those six days. The reason why is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu took the creation that he already created in an instant, put it, let's say, uh, for argument's sake, in, the, uh, in outer space, and then put it in the right place at the right time during those respective days. Now, all of those things, whether it's the, uh, the heaven and the earth and the land and the, uh, and the water and the fish and the animals and the Taninim Agdolim, the, uh, the huge uh, uh, reptiles or the animals and the kosher animals, non-kosher animals, the flowers, the trees, the, the, the moon, the, uh, the, uh, um, the sun, the stars, all of these great things were put in place on those respective days. But... We see that at the end of each day, when he completed that day's placement of those items, we see that it says, V'yerev v'yboker yom rishon, V'yerev v'yboker yom sheni, V'yerev v'yboker yom shlishi, V'yerev v'yboker yom revi'i, V'yerev v'yboker yom chamishi, V'yerev v'yboker yom hashishi. So we see there's something different. It says there was evening, there was morning, there was night, there was morning, uh, or there was night, there was day, first day. There was night, there was day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, or the sixth day. We see that there is hashishi. There's an extra letter before the word shishi, sixth. Why do we have this extra letter preceding the word? It's a superfluous uh, letter, meaning it's not necessary. If you suffice to say rishon, meaning first day, which is uh, in English called Sunday, and second day called Monday, and third day called Tuesday, and so on and so forth, if you suffice to just call it first day, second day, third day, fourth day, why is the sixth day called the sixth day? 
Says the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted us to know this day is different. Because this is the day that HaKadosh Baruch Hu made a covenant. Made a covenant with two witnesses, the heaven and the earth. And that covenant was that one day I will give Shabbat to Am Yisrael. If they accept it, if I'm going to give the Torah to Am Yisrael. If they accept the Torah, which means they'll accept Shabbat and the rest of the mitzvot, we will see Shabbat. We will all benefit an eternity of good, just like the heaven, the Allah that you feel in Shabbat. But if they reject the Torah, we won't even live to see. The world will not exist to see Shabbat. So now we see that this Shabbat is a testimony not only of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's original deal, but of our acceptance of the Torah, which by default means our acceptance that HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself created the world in six days and ceased creating on the seventh day. So when a Jewish person keeps Shabbat, observes Shabbat just like the Alachot say, they don't drive on Shabbat, they don't use their phone on Shabbat, they don't cook on Shabbat, they're not working or even discussing work on Shabbat. They're observing Shabbat by having the Kiddush, spending some time learning Torah, spending some time sharing Torah with their family, resting a little bit, praying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and simply enjoying the day in a kosher fashion. They're in essence screaming to the heavens, yes, I admit, accept, and love the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the Shabbat. And he created the Shabbat after he created this entire world. And if it wasn't for me to accept this Torah, I would have never seen Shabbat. I would have never simply existed altogether. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu created this whole thing for me. And the Shabbat, Shabbat is one of the gifts that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us because... We are the Jewish people that he created all of this for and are in essence giving us a gift before we accept the Torah. Telling us that's what is on the line. This Shabbat that I that he gave to Am Yisrael before Mount Sinai is in essence announcing the deal to them that existed already at the time of the creation. So when a person observes Shabbat, he is in essence, she's in essence saying, I accept HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Torah and everything. On the other hand, when a person does not observe Shabbat, the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says that that person might as well be one that's running in the middle of the street telling the whole world that he doesn't even believe in God. He doesn't believe in God and he doesn't believe that God created the world in six days. Which are two different beliefs, but nonetheless, same conclusion. A person can say they believe in God, but they don't believe that God gave us the Torah. Or... They believe in God, but he doesn't believe that God cares if we observe Shabbat or we don't. This was, in essence, more in line with the Greek theology. The Greeks believed in a God. They actually believed in many gods. But they simply did not believe that those gods cared about your behavior to such an extent where they would reward or punish you based on your sexual preference or behaviors or the way you conduct yourself in business and otherwise. 
So the first thing that they wanted to forsake and prohibit the Jewish people from doing was observing Shabbat. Because that is a constant reminder. A constant reminder to a Jewish person and his family that it is God and God only that created the world. So this so long that the Jewish person believed in this God being the ultimate God, being the only God, this conflicted and was in essence antithetical to the Greek belief. The second thing is that they forbid the Jewish people from observing Rosh Chodesh. Why do they care about Rosh Chodesh? Arav Ratzbis writes that in those days, in those days, they had the custom which we could implement in our days. They had a custom that Jews from around the world would get together every Rosh Chodesh and would learn Torah together. The best speakers, the best lecturers, the, the, the best material people would leave for Rosh Chodesh. That was a time that they would learn Torah instead of waiting for Tisha B'Av to have a all-day event where people are one lecture after another giving shulim instead of waiting for Yom Ha'atzma'ut Le'avdil uh, to, to give shulim all day, a day full of Torah. Every Rosh Chodesh, every Rosh Chodesh they had a day full of Torah around the world. It's needless to say, especially in Israel. And the synagogues would be packed, the Bate Midrashot would be packed just for the sake of learning Torah. And uh, these Greeks decreed to cancel this day. Why? So long as the Jewish people learn Torah, and needless to say, they learn Torah united, there's no way we're going to defeat them. Now, of course, this was not it. They also put a decree that no more Brit Milah. No more Brit Milah as Brit Milah is what takes a Jew to the supernatural. There is no physical benefit that was known to man at the time and only known to some people today about having a Brit Milah. Now, although more than 30% of society today in America, especially, still circumcises their children, many people do it because of customs. Of course, the Jewish people do it because of our religion. Even if a Jew is not religious, most of the time, they still circumcise their children. But there are many goyim, many people, and including Jews that actually frown upon the whole circumcision, Brit Milah, especially the ones that are uh, anti-Torah where they hate the Brit Milah, so much so that they create all type of perverted material that they try to pass on to people and show them how this whole Brit Milah is wicked, it's pedophilia, because the rabbi puts his, uh, does metzitzah who uh, takes the blood out uh, uh, from the Brit Milah with his mouth, and they have all of these dirty thoughts that these tzaddikim that are doing Brit Milah for free are pedophiles with babies. I mean, it's really the, the filth and the sickness in society today 
is, is, is one of those things where it never ceases to amaze me how filthy and disgusting people are to think such things but nonetheless it's because they have so much filth and garbage in their mind that they're blaming other people of doing it you know the liar is the one that suspects everybody else of lying the thief is the one that's constantly uh worried that people are stealing so because they have filth in their minds they in essence uh say that the tzaddikim have uh, have it in their mind as well but nonetheless there are many people that will look at a brit milah and say this is uh harmful what are you doing why are you cutting a piece of a uh, the male member uh, of a child i mean it doesn't make any sense but of course if you look at history this is something that has been practiced for well over four thousand years by the jewish people something that has been practiced by the non-jews for just as many years as uh, you know as avram gave a brit milah to ishmael his son so of course the ishmaelim the arabs still have circumcision to this day and uh quite frankly the uh, uh a good uh, part of the world a good part of the world i would say at least 40 percent of the world if not more of the entire planet have a circumcised male member this is not a uh, newfound idea it's not an innovation of today but still you'll see the people that are uncircumcised both in their male member and in their hearts frown upon it in such a way where they'll start accusing you of all types of crimes against human nature why because they don't know of anything that's beyond their their little mouse brain they don't know anything they don't know about the customs they don't know about religions they don't know about anything beyond just their what they see the little burger that they see and eat the uh the uh the physical needs that they have that's how far they see of course the jewish people we connect everything to akadosh and we don't walk right or left without akadosh letting us know which way to walk and the jewish people have this commandment of having circumcision since the beginning where avraham avinu hundreds of years before we received the torah was commanded by Akadosh Baruch Hu to circumcise himself and all of the people of his house at the uh, at, at the age of uh, at the age of a hundred years old. Now, the Greeks could not live with this. Why? Because this Brit Milah did not just end at the time it took place, but rather it was a life choice. A Brit Milah is not uh, necessarily something that you do on the eighth day or if the baby is uh, weak or ill you have to delay the Brit Milah and uh, take it uh, and, and do it at a different time if the uh, if the baby has jaundice which uh, is common uh, if he has jaundice at above a level of 13.5 or 13.5 and above uh, you, uh, uh, you, you not do the Brit Milah as a matter of fact, the Rav Tzion Abba Shaul says that anybody that does a Brit Milah when the baby's jaundice level is above 13.5 is really putting the baby's life at risk and it's suffic, it's doubtful if that Brit Milah is even valid as a Brit Milah or if the child really has to uh, do at the Fatadam anyway because you really did sin in that uh, circumcision. So sometimes the doctors are much more lenient than the rabbis and they just say no i want to do brit milah you can do brit milah on the second of the day the baby is born or you can do it a, a few days later or you could do it there, there and sometimes the doctors don't really care and sometimes they care too much so that's why we have our traditions we have our knowledge our sages know exactly what and who and when and uh including medical knowledge 
And uh, if the uh, baby has a jaundice level that's high, you don't do the Brit Milah. If the baby is weak, you don't do the Brit Milah. Typically, if a baby is born uh, early, it's uh, typical that the baby is uh, weak. And therefore, you don't do the Brit Milah on the eighth day, and you wait until the baby is stronger. And that's something that has to be verified and approved both by the doctor as well as the rabbi not one or the uh, or the other both have to confirm that this baby is strong enough to have a bleak milah because you don't want to put any child's life at risk uh and uh what about the whole issue of doing on the eighth day the eighth day is for healthy kids if the kid is not healthy yet you don't put the kid's uh, life at risk for the sake of a mitzvah you don't put the life at risk now when it comes to the uh, Brit Milah, this Brit Milah is not just a single act, but rather a life choice. A life choice to make this body, this entire body, this schnitzel that you have, this, this burger that you call a body, take this body and make it holy. No less than a Sefer Torah. Or make it more worthless than a burger that sat outside of the fridge for three or four days. That's what the Brit Milah is going to decide. If you take that Brit Milah that you got, either at the eight-day-old or later, you take that Brit Milah and you keep that holiness throughout your life, that means that your entire body is no less holy than a Sefer Torah. On the other hand, if you are not observing your Brit, and you're constantly desecrating your breed, wasting seed, promiscuity, homosexuality, and all types of immoral crimes, that means that that body is worth less than a hamburger. And you need to do tshuva. You don't need to destroy the body any further. You don't need to kill it, chas v'shalom. But nonetheless, you need to fix it. You need to do a tikkun abrit. You need to, to fix what you have desecrated. Now, the Greeks would have none of this. Why? They lived a life of immorality. In fact, the immorality that went from Sodom and Gomorrah traveled to Greece and spread to the whole world of today. Where when they had their uh, gladiators, their muscular warriors, tried to make a statement they would put them in a coliseum and take some Jew poor Jewish people and make them fight. But to make sure that everybody enjoys the fight, because perhaps some people don't necessarily just want to see blood, they made sure that the fight was being done naked. That's how sick these sick people were. The homosexuality, the promiscuity, the, the constant vile nature that they called life to us Jewish people is death. It's worse than death. So for us to sanctify our body, as the Torah says in Parashat Kedoshim, Kedoshim tiyu ki kadoshani, you be holy because I am holy. Kadosh Baruch Hu says, one of the ultimate ways for a Jew to make themselves holy and quite frankly, without it, there is no holiness, is the holiness of the Brit, the holiness of the, uh, of the uh, uh, way a person 
is with their uh, treating their own body. If a person treats their body like a uh, uh, like it's uh, public property, there is not an ounce of holiness in that person, whether it's male or female. If she is walking around and makes sure that her body is like public property, like it's a garbage pail that everybody can see, everybody can see every crevice, everybody can see every uh, layer, everything. That woman has literally zero holiness in her. She has a holiness of a neshama, but that is hidden by the klipa that she's continuing to build upon walking around immodestly. No, but she does afrashat chala and gives tzedakah. Okay, in Genom, they're also going to give that tzedakah to certain people and do afrashat chala over there. When you walk around immodestly, you're, you are showing that you simply do not care about Torah of Hashem. You don't care about Hashem, you don't care about His Torah. Why? Because the, the, the holiness of a person begins with how they treat their body and making sure that they are not public property. Same thing with a guy. Guy that walks around with immodest clothes, which unfortunately has become very common today. All these guys that call themselves religious, walking around with tight pants or half naked or naked or whatever they're walking around with. Or needless to say, guys that are constantly going to all of these nightclubs and bars and doing how many sins over there with different people every day or with themselves. All of these different things desecrate the holiness of the body. A person like that cannot retain any holiness whatsoever until they start doing tshuva. This is why you will sometimes see people start taking on mitzvot, start taking on mitzvot. He started keeping Shabbat, he started keeping kosher, but he still his head is still dafuk. He still can't learn Torah like a normal person. He still can't grow in Torah. He still curses like a truck driver. He still acts like as if, you know, every day he could be giving up the entire Torah. Why? Because doing some mitzvot is good, but unless you have sanctified yourself by having a Brit Kodesh, you haven't started doing tshuva. You haven't started doing tshuva. When a person sanctifies themselves, sanctifies their body, not just by doing mitzvot, but by actually sanctifying the body, by keeping themselves moral and protecting their Brit, that person can do anything. They can learn Torah at the highest level, just give them time. They can observe all of the mitzvot, just give them time to get there. They'll get to everything. But if they don't protect their bleat, you'll see that wherever they are, at some point they hit a plateau and they can't grow further. They can't grow further. So this covenant that we got at the time of Avraham Avinu, that we have to implement in every Jewish baby, is one of the main things that makes the Jewish people not only different, but makes the Jewish people holy. And when a Greek saw that every time he saw one of his gladiators fighting one of the poor Jewish people, and he sees the Jewish people naked, and he sees that they're different, this would drive them insane. Would simply drive them insane. That This still existed, and therefore, they said that this is not something that can continue. Now, Arabi again, Allah Shalom, writes in his uh, Sefer, in the uh, ones that uh, I've mentioned to you guys before, about uh, that we have about uh, each part of the Torah. Arabi again spoke about through his many years of doing uh, uh, Kiruv and giving lectures. And one of the books that they put together 
is the Hanukkah and Purim. All types of lectures that Aravi again spoke about uh, Hanukkah and also Purim. And here on uh, in chapter 6, page 37 in the English version, he brings the Radak. And the Radak says that God will release us from the pit of exile by the merit of the covenant. Meaning that the Mashiach is going to come when Am Yisrael protects their breed. Now, of course, everyone say, wait, it's never going to be that uh, every Jew keeps their breed. There's always going to be somebody that's still a uh, Bil'am. Certainly. But when enough Jews protect their breed, enough Jews do tshuva, enough Jews care about their other fellow Jews and society at large to do tshuva for the issues of immorality, then you will see the domino effect of Kedusha stem into the world enough, enough to make a Kedush Baruch Hu bring the Mashiach. Meaning you don't have to wait for the whole world or the whole Jewish people to protect their covenant, but rather there already being enough people doing it and enough people caring about it. Now, Aravi again also says, why the Brit Milah? Why is, a, uh, why is it done on the eighth day? He brings the Maral. The Maral says because eight represents, eight is a number that represents the supernatural, something that's above nature. And a Brit Milah elevates a Jew above nature and gives him a share in eternity, in life after death and the resurrection of the dead, and the world to come. And therefore, it was no wonder why at a Brit Milah we recite the verse in, uh, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 6, where it says, I passed over you and I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you, in your blood, live. Meaning that in the, uh, in the whole ceremony of a Brit Milah, there's this verse that's mentioned about how will live through our blood. What blood? The blood of the Brit Milah. He says, why? Because this Brit Milah, this special covenant, is what makes Am Yisrael holy. But not just because you did it at eight days old and nobody even asked you, but rather because you kept that Brit throughout your life. And if you desecrated at some point, you did Shuva, and then you kept it from that point on. And everybody knows, the Gebarayim Masechet Yomah, page 86, says that a person that does Shuva out of fear, is turning all of their sins that were purposeful into accidental sins. Meaning they're still sins, but much, much lower de- degree. But a person that does tshuva out of love turns all of their sins that were purposeful into mitzvot. But how could a person do tshuva out of love? By helping other people do tshuva. Helping other people do tshuva, doing kiruv, is the highest level of chesed that you do in this world. And that's the highest way to show that you love Hashem. And therefore, you are literally turning all of your sins into mitzvot. Now, how do you do kiruv? Not everybody is a speaker, and uh, not everybody is a someone that uh, can write books. Simple. Make kiruv your number one investment in your life. Make kiruv your number one investment in your life. Unfortunately, some people had the opportunity and did not do it. I heard a shocking story today from our Rosh Shiva, our Rosh Kolel, our Rosh Kolel in Eretz Yisrael, Rav Sharvit. It's an extraordinary Talmud uh, Chacham and speaker. He's given uh, almost uh, 3,000 lectures 
in his life. And Baruch uh, Hashem, he's now uh, he's our head of our kollel. And uh, Rav Shavit said a real story that uh, was actually documented. And Bezat uh, Hashem, I'm trying to get the uh, the uh, the paper on it and perhaps put it on the uh, video when we post the shield tomorrow. But anyway, he says that there was a uh, wealthy Jew, a wealthy Jew uh, that lived in uh, in America, and there was a rabbi that he knew. Now this rabbi made Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, and, um, but, you know, still, the, uh, stayed in touch with different people. One day, this rabbi, who was Talmud Chacham, Tzaddik, good person, gets a phone call from this Jew that he knows from America. This Jew right now is, at that time, he's uh, 90 years old, 90-something years old already. And the Jew tells him, listen, rabbi, I don't have a wife, and I don't have any kids. And what I want to do is I want to give the $50 million that I have in the bank, I want to give it to you. And you put it into Torah or all the good things that you do. You're the only person I can trust. Sounds good. $50 million. It's fantastic. You can help the world of Torah in a very big way. The rabbi knew that the Yetzirah was not going to let this go. $50 million going into the Torah world, it's not happening so easily. So he told the uh, old man, he's like, I appreciate the gesture and uh, I'm more than happy to help you, but what's the point of doing it after you die? Why not do something now? The guy says, no, 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 Rabbi. Only after I die. The rabbi talks to him about it for 40 minutes. Tell him, listen, you have like the best gun in the world in your hands. You have this money. You're 90 something years old. We both know you're not going to live forever. You decide that you want to do good and you want to use this gun that you've accumulated, the best gun in the world, and use it for the best thing in the world. But you're putting something to block the gun. That's what's happening here. The guy says, I appreciate the analogy. I'm not giving any money right now. After I die, we'll go to a lawyer. I'm putting your name in the will. You're going to get the money. And after that, you're going to do it. The rabbi tries again. Like, Listen, I understand you don't want to give all the money right now. I'm not saying give all the money right now. But why don't you give something? $40 million. You have 50? Give $40 million for Torah now while you're alive. Because you'll have merits in this world while you're alive. I mean, it's a world of difference getting the merits while you're alive versus after you're dead. After you're dead, you have no Yetzirah. So, you know, in Shemaya, I say, yeah, he gave the money, but in reality, uh, who else is he going to give it to? He doesn't have a, uh, a wife, doesn't have any kids. What is he going to give it to? Uh, idol worship. So he gave it to Torah, big deal. But if you gave it during your life, that means you overcame a Yetzirah, something that you've acquired your whole life and you're giving it away for the sake of Torah. That's a big deal. So give $40 million for Torah. Keep yourself $10 million. $10 million at your age, you could literally take the money and eat every day. You still won't run out of money. Eat the money itself. Instead of steaks and everything else, you could actually eat the money and you still won't run out of money. The guy says to the rabbi, Rabbi, not even one dollar. Am I giving while I'm alive? After 40 minutes of trying, 
to entice this guy to do the right thing and give during his life, there's nothing for the rabbi to do. Fine. That's what his decision was. Shortly later, the guy died, and the rabbi gets a phone call from a law firm who tells him that he has to come and uh, deal with this case. This person died. So, comes to deal with the case, and they say, okay, rabbi, this, uh, this man left $50 million for the teachings of the Bible. So we gathered all of the names of the organizations that teach the Bible, and it's for you to choose which one to give it to. The rabbi looks at the list, and he sees it's all churches, Christian idol worship churches one after another after another after another not a single synagogue not a single yeshiva not a single kolel the guy the rabbi says hold on a second you made a mistake here i knew the guy he wanted to give the 50 million dollars for torah that's what he meant by bible they said to him we're sorry in this country bible means new testament bible means christianity which christian organization do you want the 50 million dollars to go to and there's nothing he can do about it such a punishment such a punishment is literally worse than gainum why because this person is not only going to get punished for whatever sins he made during his life but now he's gonna pay a heavy heavy crime heavy punishment that he contributed to more sins where all of his life's work all of the money went to go publicize idol worship you see rabotai karim when a Talmud Chacham tells you something, he's not telling you something out of uh, just, uh, ah, this is uh, nice for you to hear. If Talmud Chacham is telling you something that has to do with Da'at Torah, a person needs to take that into account. But unfortunately, some people don't have the merit to see the truth. Don't have the merit to see the truth because they already chose not to. So the Greeks, no matter what you showed them, did not want to see the truth. They simply wanted to change the truth to whatever they felt. Whatever they felt. And Brit Milah was one of the ways that they wanted to eliminate anybody else from seeing the truth. Because this covenant that the Jewish people have with their God of cutting their flesh to show that they are different from everybody else was simply unbearable to the, for the Greeks to see. Because that means that every action that they do has to do with their God. Every time there's a baby that comes to the world, it has to do with their God. Every time there's a marriage, it has to do with their God. It was simply unbearable for the Greeks to deal with. Now, the fourth decree, now that we're going after these three, we're going to go into the other ones. We're going to go into the other ones to show how evil these people were. Rabbi Tzakratzbi writes that the fourth decree was that this is actually well known and the Rambam writes this in his letters 
that this was one of the decrees of the Greeks. Lachkok al karnei shvarim, shen lebaalem chelak beeloi Israel, v'ken al dlatot abatim. The Greeks instituted a law, passed a law that obligated the Jewish people to engrave on the horns, on the shofarim, and on their doors that they do not have a share in the God of Israel. They no longer believe in God in so many words. Publicly declare that they don't believe in God. Now why did they pick the uh, the horns? Because in those days, people would use these horns for, as a bottle for the for the kids to, to drink their, uh, to, to eat their food and drink their milk. So they said the Greeks were smart people intellectually and very conniving and evil. They figured that if a baby sees a certain statement enough times, it's going to also be engraved into their heart. And this is what they wanted to, this is what they passed, that Jews publicly make a statement that they don't believe in God. The fifth decree was not being allowed to say the word God in any way, shape, or form. Not Hashem, not the Shem Havaya, nothing. Not allowed to say God's name anywhere. Why? Because the Greeks knew that so long as a Jew says the uh, the name of Hashem, this is going to remind him of where he came from, remind him of Judgment Day, remind him of decrees, reminding him of mitzvot. Now it's not just saying not saying the name of Hashem, but also not saying anything that refers to Hashem, such as not allowed to say the word Amen. Amen is an acronym for the word El Melech Neeman, the God, the King that is reliable, meaning that whatever He said, He's going to do. He said that He'll reward the righteous; He'll do that. He said He'll punish the wicked; He'll do that. That's what Rashi. Rashi says is the uh, the meaning of the word Amen. Jews were forbidden from saying the word Amen. They were also forbidden from saying blessings. Saying Baruch Atah Hashem was forbidden. No more blessings. Why are you blessing God? There are many other gods. Go say thank you to them according to the Greeks. Because they figured that even these small things that perhaps... Don't seem like such a big deal. Okay, so he doesn't say amen every time he hears a blessing. So he doesn't say a blessing even. What's the big deal? Enough time passes, a person forgets that God even exists. Already we see, Rabotai, that these Greeks were very strategic with their decrees. They didn't just cancel out the entire Torah. In fact, one of the Chachamim says that the reason why there are three decrees, the Shabbat, the Rosh Chodesh, and the Brit Milah that are mentioned in the, uh, uh, in the Megillah of Bnei Hashmonaim is because these three were the most powerfully instituted ones, enforced ones, and because uh, Antiochus, his strategy was that he'll tell the Jewish people, don't keep these three, but we know you have 613. So you'll still have 610. I'm not trying to cancel out your religion. 
I'm just telling you three. What? I'm being very uh, diplomatic here with you guys. I'm uh, very open, very liberal with you. I'm not saying to uh, cancel out your entire Torah. We want you to stay Jewish. We'll even put you in the government. We'll put you into office. We'll give you good jobs. We'll do a lot of things. Just show us that you really want to be part of us by canceling these three and you continue keeping your other 610. That's in essence was the uh the evil strategy of the uh the greek empire and its leader antiochus now the uh, the person that would say amen to a blessing or would say a blessing itself was at life risk if a greek heard somebody is making a blessing or anybody would say this guy makes blessings they didn't need any further evidence they'd simply just kill those people and in essence scare enough people by showing them oh we heard this guy makes blessings somebody told us one of the people that already is a mitiaven one of the people that already adapted and elected to uh, to go with the greeks by choice he told us this guy makes blessings this guy says Baruch Hashem that's why we killed them so the rest of you learn not to do it and people would see this and get scared to death the Maritz the Maritz brings this in the uh and uh in uh in his sefer and also it's in uh in it's it's in it's in uh daf uh in uh 76. This is why after the um, the miracle of, of winning the war took place, the sages instituted and uh, of the Anshek Nesedakdullah instituted the prayer of Enke Eloenu. There's a uh, prayer in our Sidurim, both the Sfaradim and Ashkenazim have this in their Sidurim, a section, a paragraph of prayer. There's no one like our God. There's no one like our King. Uh, uh, and uh, we do that. Why? Because this is, in essence, a uh, a way to undo the damage of not saying amen and not saying blessings under the uh, decrees of the Greek people. Next, we have the next evil decree. This perhaps will touch the nerve of some of you, and if it doesn't touch the nerve of some of you, you should check your spiritual pulse. Shekol betula aniset tibael ligamon trila. Every woman that's a virgin and wants to get married has to have intimate relations with one of the Greeks first in order to be permitted to get married. This was one of the decrees that was passed. The whole issue of intimacy was of highest significance in the Jewish world since the beginning because as I said before, this is what makes us holy. The way that we are intimate with our wives is one of the ways that distinguishes us from the nations. So much so that even Bilam, 
The Rasha knew that this is the way to destroy Am Yisrael, where you, when you destroy the holiness of intimacy of the Jewish people, you destroy the Jewish people. That's why after trying to curse us three times and failing, where Hashem turned the curses of Bilam into uh, blessings, Bilam gave the idea to Balak in Parashat Balak, go send all of your girls with immodest clothes and get them to convince the Jewish people to sleep with them. If you do that, their own God will destroy them. Why? Because their God hates Zima, hates immorality. And that's what happened. Balak sent all of the girls to the Jewish people camp and unfortunately the Jewish people fell for it. And Arav Pinkus, Allah Shalom says that this was the only time in the entire Torah where Kadosh Baruch Hu punished Am Yisrael without warning them. Where Kadosh Baruch Hu decided to annihilate Am Yisrael and was and proceeded with it. 24,000 people died in, in, in literally in moments and it only stopped when Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Akoen killed the uh, the leaders of this whole immoral act publicly killed Zimri and uh, uh, and Cosby the Zimri was the leader of the Shimon tribe and the Goya uh, was uh, was a woman named Cosby was the princess he killed them while they were in the middle of the act and showed everybody the bodies made a whole big kiddush Hashem didn't care the fact that they were going to kill him didn't care about popularity didn't care about the gruesomeness of what was happening he killed them during the act and the uh Mishnah in Avot says that there were 10 miracles 10 miracles that took place during this murder this this mitzvah this murder that was a mitzvah that saved the entire people HaKadosh Baruch Hu blessed Pinchas with a life where he's never gonna die he ended up turning into Eliyahu Navi. he also gave him uh, his neshama back because after he killed uh Zimri and Cosby uh all of the soldiers of Zimri who was the leader ran into the tent and from the fear he got a heart attack and died Hashem put his neshama back into him and then gave him extra strength to fight everybody off and actually raise both of the bodies that were stuck to his spear in the air like a flag another miracle the Mishnah Navod says that he actually put the spear in the sexual organs while they were in the act to show that this is indeed what they were doing miraculously went through it don't even imagine what I'm trying to tell you but that's what happened the 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 key here is that we see that HaKadosh Baruch Hu simply decided that this was the only cure to this cancer that was a life-ending cancer and because of that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, at the beginning of Parashat Pinchas says to Moshe Rabbeinu for all of those naysayers for all of those people that think that Pinchas was a uh, extreme fanatic just let them know the only reason why everybody's still alive the only reason why there's still an Am Yisrael in the world today is because of what Pinchas did because I decided that I was going to destroy everybody and he did an act that 
took my vengeance for me. And uh, because of him, I gave Am Yisrael another chance. And Rav Pinkus, Alava uh, Shalom, wrote in his Sefer that this was a, uh, not just a heroic act, but rather this was an uh, act that saved Am Yisrael from a punishment that was like no other punishment in the entire Torah. Now these Reshaim, these Greeks, wanted to ruin the sanctity of Am Yisrael and make sure that every holy Jewish girl that was going to get married is going to have intimate relations with one of their filthy, disgusting, Greek, excuse-of-a-life, garbage people. Unfortunately, Rabotai Karim, when it says, Nashim Da'atam Kala, that the, uh, the, the mind of a woman is, a, uh, is, uh, is easy to influence, most people, especially the naysayers, the missionaries, the uh, so-called Messianic Jews that are really Christians in disguise, uh, they translate this in a negative fashion, that you know the Judaism and the Torah looks at uh, women in an unfavorable way. This is the furthest thing from the truth. And the reason why is exactly this story I'm about to tell you, where Nashim Da'atan Kala is a statement that was made in favor of the holy Jewish women. Where first and foremost, we know that women are uh, emotional much more than men are. But at the same token, they're also not going to abandon Hashem as easily as men do at times. Because of something that somebody said. So when the Greeks passed this decree, even though the men didn't like this decree, that their future wife is going to be used property by the time they're going to marry her, their sister is going to be used by somebody before she gets married. Unfortunately, many of the men accepted it. The women did not accept it. But what can they do? Comes one of the sisters of the Hashmonaim, enters the room in a uh, place where all of the Jewish people are standing. She was scheduled to be married, and thereby she was scheduled to go into the camp of the Greeks to go commit relations with one of the Greek animals who called himself a human being. She comes in front of all of the Jewish people, the rabbis, the regular people, and this tzaddikah that has never been touched by anybody takes off her clothes in front of everyone. So much so that when her brothers saw this, and everybody saw this, they wanted to kill her. What are you doing? What are you doing? And they tried, Dwakshi Mamash wanted to kill her. And then this smart girl told her brothers, Oh, so I'm only allowed to do this with the Greeks then? And then her brothers and the rest of the people got the message. How did you ever become okay with the fact that your wives are going to be used 
by one of these filthy Greeks. How did you become okay with it? I'm not okay with it. And this created a jealousy among the Hashmonaim and thereby the rest of the people that joined them. We can't continue letting the Greeks defile our households, defile our wives, defile our daughters. We've been quiet for way too long. And this was one of the acts that a woman, a righteous woman, used her beauty in order to get Amisel to wake up. And it needed to be that extreme in order to wake people up, apparently. But this, Rabotai, was one of the evil decrees of the Greeks in order to enter the household of the Jewish people because one of the people that guided the Greeks, as I told you in last week's shiur, was a heretic named Tatni ben Pachat, Basha Merusha, who abandoned his Jewish traditions and religion and adopted to the Greek ways and advised his Greek cronies all types of strategies to go against his brethren, telling them that as long as they give them the ability to accept the korbanot, the sacrifices, then their prayers will be accepted and the Greeks will never win. As long as they have holiness, sexual uh, uh, immorality is not among the Jewish people, Hashem will hear their prayers. As long as uh, uh, they act uh, where, uh, where they pray to Hashem, they do chesed, Hashem will hear their prayers. So he constantly gave them insights about what they needed to ruin specifically. This Tatni ben Pachat was a, uh, hinted in the Pasuk, Save me from my brother, save me from Esav, where save me from my brother, that's Tatni ben Pachat, uh, that uh, was my brother, but really he is uh, more Esav than anybody else. So now in the, uh, this Tatni ben Pachat, new Torah, New Torah, unfortunately, like some other heretics out there today, and used it against the Jewish people. And in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 22b, it talks about how a woman makes a brit, makes a covenant with her first mate. The man that she's with for the first time in our life, that who she, that's who she has a covenant with. That is who she's going to think about. Even if she ends up being with somebody else. Even if she ends up being with Shem many other people. She's always going to remember that first guy. This is a known thing, and the sages knew it. This is both a physical and a spiritual and the, since Tatni ben Pachat was one of the Mityavnim who knew the oral Torah, this is some of the insights that he told the Greeks in order to encourage them to implement his laws that if you want to have all of the Jewish women have Greeks in their mind and truly adopt the Greek laws, 
you have to make sure that the first person the Jewish women are with with the Greeks let her get married to another man let her do whatever she wants but if the first guy is a Greek then Greek is gonna be in her system this Rasha Merusha is uh, one of the people that gave the Greeks such a filthy idea because if they just wanted to be with women then why not just be with all women married not married young old what's the difference they specifically wanted to be with the women that were virgin before they got married showing how evil evil really is now this also shows us one of the reasons why the uh the uh, torah tells us that it's forbidden to teach the goyim the non-jews the intricate details of our mitzvot of the oral torah it's forbidden for a non-jew to learn gemara it's forbidden for him and it's forbidden for us to teach him this is why i always tell people if you're in a process of conversion focus on what you need to learn for the sake of conversion don't try to conquer the entire world of torah in one day focus on what you need to learn for uh, for the sake of conversion because if you're learning what you need to learn then you know that hashem is going to be with you once you start learning things that are forbidden to you then perhaps hashem is not going to be with you but also the yetzalah is going to be with you and before you know it you're going to go into the wrong place wrong place wrong time wrong understanding and you can get into a lot of trouble and unfortunately this is one of the things that uh you uh you see in the world today people don't want to listen to any rabbi they just want to do whatever they want and before you know it they simply decide that they're jewish just because they learned torah they decided that they were jewish and this unfortunately is uh, becoming more and more common or better yet they decide they know more than the rabbi why because they read two three four five books or ten books or twenty books they decide they know more than the rabbis they decide they know more than so this type of distorted mentality is uh, not something that appears overnight it's something that is uh, created over time when uh, when people don't learn what they're supposed to be learning so the Greeks wanted to make sure that the knowledge that they had of the old Torah is going to be used against the Jewish people and that was one of the things that they implemented the seventh decree the seventh decree is that the Greeks outlawed mikveh anyone that would send his wife to the mikveh would get a death penalty would get a death penalty as we know a Jews a Jew is not allowed to be with his wife during our menstrual cycle he has to wait until the bleeding stops a minimum of four days even if she bleeds for only one or two minimum of four days for Sfaradim, minimum of five days for Ashkenazim plus seven days for both meaning it's 11 days minimum or 12 days minimum out of the month the Jews are not with their wives the Jewish men are not with their Jewish wives sometimes it's longer if uh if she bled for longer or needless to say if she just uh, uh gave uh you know had had uh, had a baby then you're talking about a uh, couple of months or more uh but nonetheless 
anytime the woman is bleeding from that part of the body if it's a coming from the uterus the uh she's forbidden from being with her husband she's considered nida which is spiritual impurity that doesn't make her a bad person it doesn't make her uh, uh, a uh, a person that's uh, uh, lesser in any way shape or form just that she's forbidden from being with a husband this is actually a time for her and her husband to build their relationship without intimacy which is very very much a uh, needed part of every relationship and nonetheless the, uh, the this is one of the things that creates uh, holiness in a marriage and also creates a uh, a constant state of attraction a constant desire for a uh, Jewish man to be with his Jewish wife each month because he's not he's never overdoing it he's never overdoing it just like Shlomo Amedach says Dvash Matzata Echol Dayeka Peniz if you found honey which is referring to a uh, a woman a Jewish woman you found honey meaning you're getting married to her uh eat only a little bit because if you eat too much you end up throwing up in so many words this is an analogy for saying you married a kosher woman perfect don't overdo it why if you overdo it then what's going to end up happening is you're not going to want her anymore and this we see in the secular world in a non-jewish world where over 80 percent of people that get married in, in, in western society get divorced within five years it's uh it's it's pretty much normal for people to get divorced at least once during their life if not more often it's no longer frowned upon it's no longer taboo in fact if you're a celebrity and you've gotten uh, divorced less than two or three times you're not even an a-list actor anymore you're not an a-list celebrity because to be a celebrity you have to be already through several marriages and you can literally have people in their 20s in their early 30s already through three or four marriages and without even thinking twice about it and unfortunately this is a greek mentality this is a greek mentality that has infiltrated the world and is still in the world today and uh, one of the things that keeps a jewish marriage holy and different is the uh the fact that uh, you have mikveh mikveh is when the uh, the days uh, are completed the like i said either 11 or 12 days uh respectively and the woman then goes to the mikveh and she they are there are the husband and wife are together that night it's very very important for the man to be with his wife during mikveh night it's a very big deal it's like a holiday it's very important for a man to be with his wife during mikveh night if the woman does not want to go to the mikveh she's called a shamoredit rambam says a shamoredit is a woman who does not want to be intimate with her husband and this is one of the grounds for divorce without giving her a ktuba uh so it's a woman doesn't want to be with a husband it's a very problematic woman uh same thing with a husband husband doesn't want to be with his wife it's also a grounds for divorce uh needless to say if a woman doesn't want to go to the mikveh which is typically what happens if she doesn't want to be the husband she doesn't go to the mikveh because then she knows that even if uh even if he doesn't care if he's a religious jew if she didn't go to the mikveh he won't touch her hand even needless to say he won't be with her so this is one of the things where is a uh, grounds for divorce if somebody doesn't observe this mitzvah now the uh greeks would have none of it why would they have none of it because for them to limit a person to only one woman to limit a woman only to one man was unprecedented was unacceptable 
It's too religious for them. Too religious for them because they wanted each person to be with whoever they want, whenever they want. Now, so far we see how different the life of a Jew is versus the life of a Greek. Certainly to finish this whole list, we're going to have to do another shoe. so I'm going to give you one more decree and then we'll go over the whole thing so far. Try to wrap it all up. The next decree that the evil Greeks passed was the prohibition for a man to give his wife, write his wife a ketubah. Write himself a ketubah. Man wanted to marry a woman, he has to give a ketubah. In those days, it was customized that a man would write his own ketubah, which is a contract. Today, it's uh, the custom is for the uh, either the rabbi to write it or you simply to, you know, buy it, a rabbi to buy it, uh, and uh, you uh, pay for it. Uh, or if your rabbi really likes you, he'll give it to you for free. Uh, but nonetheless, a, uh, this uh, ketubah is the contract is the contract that a uh, person has when he wants to marry a woman because that contract in essence is a purchase the jewish man is buying the woman not buying her as a slave but buying her in a sense that she belongs to him everything that's hers is is becomes his and he is a uh, owes her he's obligated to her he has to give her sustenance he has to be uh, intimate with her he has to give her clothing uh he's uh he owes her also it's not just a uh, one-way street now of course the the feminists and the uh the anti-torah people will tell you yeah this is not good this is how uh judaism puts down women they're making them uh purchasing them and they're putting women down this is as far from the truth as it gets but uh this is actually one of the ways that the sages instituted to protect the women to protect the women how do they protect the women while the greeks wanted to outlaw this and anyone that wrote a tuba for his new wife would get their fingers cut off the uh the gemara says in a couple of places in uh, page 11a in uh page 89a uh and other places as well that the sages instituted the mitzvah of a ketubah in order to protect the women from being thrown out for no valid reason why you cannot use a jewish girl and abuse you can't just use a get what you want and then just throw her out just because you want to get somebody a little younger or you want to get somebody with a different hair color or you want to get somebody that cooks different style food if you're going to be allowed to be with this woman you are obligated to her and if you violate that obligation you'll have to pay for it a certain price that is already predetermined before you uh before you uh uh you get married now what happens if uh the guy committed okay i'm gonna give this woman uh he writes it you know he likes her he wants to show that he likes her he writes $100,000 on Aktuba. He writes $500,000 on Aktuba. He writes whatever number. Yeah, yeah, I love you, honey. This doesn't really make a difference. Whatever. $500,000, I'll give you. Don't worry, don't worry. And he thinks to himself, ah, it's never really applicable. Never applicable. I'm marrying her forever, right? And uh, Mr. Wonderful over here, 
marries the tzaddikah, and then five, six months later, he says, listen, honey, uh, I don't love you anymore. What do you mean you don't love me anymore? What do you mean? What, what are you talking about? You don't love me anymore. No, you know, listen, uh, my secretary, you know, I, I think she cares about me and this and that. Okay, no problem. You gotta you give her a get. You want to leave? No problem. That's a, uh, that's what you want to do. You want to ruin your life that way? You want a replacement with some zona? No problem. You have to pay the ketubah. Oh yeah, that ketubah, I don't have the money. I don't have the money. You know, I have, uh, I have some real estate deals that have to go through and this and that. Habibi, sell everything. You have to sell everything. Go borrow the money until you pay the Ktuba. Not tomorrow, not in six months, not when your deals go through, immediately. There is no such thing as a divorce being complete without him paying the Ktuba. No such thing. Yeah, but I'm going to lose money as a result. Who cares? It's your problem. Should have thought about that before you cheated on her with some secretary. So here, the sages instituted the whole issue of Kduba for the protection of Jewish women. Not to be used and abused, chas shalom, by filthy people that want to act like Greeks, even though they look like Jews. And the Greek people wanted the Jewish people to throw their wives out freely. Why? Because the whole Greek mentality was to promote promiscuity. Promote homosexuality, promiscuity, free, free, free bodies, free this, free that. So here you see the first eight of 22 decrees, and it's obviously tragic. Now, let's ask ourselves the question. You see here that the Greeks tried to destroy Judaism by forbidding us from keeping Shabbat how many Jews do you know forget about how many Jews are in the world forget about how many Jews you don't know how many Jews do you know that call themselves Jews that are celebrating Hanukkah right now eating sufganiyot bigger than their head playing with the sivivon acting proud to be a Jew but yet do not observe Shabbat ask them what makes you a Jew any more than makes you a Greek the Greek wanted you to desecrate Shabbat you in the year 5782 or 2021 according to the Gregorian calendar are desecrating Shabbat just like the Greeks wanted you to they said that if you desecrate Shabbat you're one of the Greeks are you Greek no come on man I'm not Greek I'm a Jew just like you even more than you then how come you don't keep Shabbat now you know it's like this it's like that okay fine it's like this it's like that Second, Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is not just a day that Am Yisrael celebrated back then as a day full of Torah, but also Rosh Chodesh is symbolic of all of our Jewish holidays. We need to know exactly when Rosh Chodesh is in order to know when Rosh Hashanah is, in order to know when Yom Kippur is, 
if we do not have the right calculation of when Rosh Chodesh is, we could be fasting on the wrong day and eating on the wrong day, and thereby, Chas v'shalom, getting a karet sin, cutting ourselves out of the covenant of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, going to Gehenom, getting punished in this world and the next. If we don't know when Rosh Chodesh is, we could be eating chametz on Pesach and eating matzah on a regular day. If we don't know when Rosh Chodesh is, we simply do not know how to observe God's laws. Do you observe God's laws? Do you fast on Yom Kippur and not drive on Rosh Hashanah and also observe all of the Yom Tovs, whether it's the one Yom Tov or two Yom Tovs, depending on where you live? Or are you Greek? Because the Greeks didn't want you to keep two Yom Tovs. In fact, they didn't even want you to keep one Yom Tov. So much so that they instituted a decree for you to forget about Yom Tov by forgetting about Rosh Chodesh. Why are you celebrating Hanukkah and not celebrating Tisha B'Av? You eat the Sufganiyot and Latkes on the rabbinical holiday of Hanukkah. But on Tisha B'Av, when the rabbis tell you that you're obligated to fast, you look at them like they have five heads. Now I got to work, Rabbi. I can't fast while I'm working. You think it's an elective fast. Is this one of those easy fasts, Rabbi? No, I only fast on Yom Kippur. I don't fast on the other fasts. Okay, Habibi. What makes you Jewish? Any more than it makes you Greek. Third is the Brit Milah. Everybody says, no, no, I got my kids have Brit Milah. That's not really a big deal. Why? Even Muhammad and Mustafa give a Brit Milah to their kids. Sometimes Chris and Steve from the church also do a Brit Milah for their kids. It's not exactly such a big deal to do a circumcision anymore. Like I said, billions of people have circumcised male members. Question is, do you know what to do with that Brit Milah as far as what makes it a Brit Milah versus a circumcision? There's a circumcision which billions of people have in the world today. And then there's a Brit Milah which only few know how to keep it as a Brit Milah. Protecting your breed from promiscuity, protecting your breed from wasting seed, protecting your breed from all of the things that are forbidden, according to the Torah and the sages. That's what keeps that breed milah holy. When you see that there is an abundance of homosexuality in communities which include the Jewish community, and all types of people, including some rabbis, are accepting, not only tolerating it, accepting it as if this is the new reality. As if this needs to be the new reality. We need to accept them. Where there are some people that call themselves religious orthodox homosexuals. Like, this is not an uh, oxymoron from hell. Now, if you see that people have desecrated their Brit Milat to such an extent... And you're not concerned enough to do something about it, there's something wrong with you too. The fact that there is literally only myself 
in the world today in the english-speaking world today that regularly speaks about the issues of brit specifically with immorality wasting seed is a disaster and a half as much as i love to get more and more mitzvot and to take all of the world's mitzvot to get people to do tshuva for this issue the reality is we need more Yereshamayim jews to teach about the issues of immorality but you can't teach people about immorality if you yourself are immoral and unfortunately that's what happens sometimes you have people that are immoral teaching about morality and then you find out they're the worst people in the world so the key is to understand is that each and every single person that understands the significance the importance of the teachings of morality needs to make sure that there is as much of it as possible as much of it as possible there's more books there's more lectures there's more videos there's simply more of it because this is what distinguishes us from being animals not even from being going from simply being animals this is the difference between man and animal if we are holy then we are men if we're not holy we're simply animals if you're not protecting your breed and worse yet you're promoting immorality by the way that you act you're promoting immorality by the way you dress you're accepting immorality as a new standard you're accepting immorality as even being good why are you celebrating Hanukkah if you're more Greek than Jew the fourth decree that told us that they wanted us to not say not uh, not uh, remember HaKadosh Baruch Hu by simply engraving engraving on the horns engraving on the doors that we have no share of the God of Israel this is symbolic of how people treat their mitzvot of mezuzah and tefillin you see a person with a half a million dollar house million dollar house two million dollar house but the tefillin that he's wearing are from his bar mitzvah 15 20 years ago you tell him you should buy a normal pair of tefillin cost you a couple of thousand dollars no rabbi i have these already for 20 years they're still good when's the last time you got them checked oh you have to get them checked rabbi why nothing happened they only fell a few times what's the big deal person has a million dollars in a house that's going to stay in this world but tefillin from his bar mitzvah or better yet he has a very expensive house and a salary that goes along with it but if you tell him that you have to get some good mezuzot it's going to cost you 150 200 or more per mezuzah he looks at you like you have five heads why so expensive rabbi oh so the house you could spend the money on but protection for your house and for everybody in it you figure that you can live without apparently you forgot this house also owned by God maybe you should write on your door you have no share of the God of Israel maybe you should write on your car keys you have no share of the God of Israel why because for the things of this world you have no problem spending money on just like the Greeks but the things that have to do with the next world with eternity is always a problem there's always stinginess 
You tell the guy, listen, you give myself 10% of your of the income that you make to for the sake of Torah. Oh no, Rabbi, listen, I give money, but I give it to like my, you know, people that are in my family. I give it to my kids, I give it to my wife. Are your kids and wife homeless? Are they poor? No, no, they live with me. No, no, they're not poor. So how, how do you consider what you're giving them, Marcel? What? What's what what? It says help your own family first, Rabbi. Help them if they have a need. Not if you're already obligated to do it. But people will use the their Marcel as if it's a uh uh, the IRS uh, uh, write-off sheet. Everything that they ever spend on anything, they want to pretend as if it's Marcel. Tell them, why don't you take that $100,000 you make a year, write a check for 10000 put it for some kolel, or for kiruv, or something that's going to help the world of Torah. Oh, Rabbi, uh, can I just give a part of it now, and maybe later on when I make more money? Is a person has forgotten who a Kadosh Baruch is. God who HaKadosh Baruch Hu is. He thinks that he's the one making the money. It's very sad, Rabotai. It's very sad, but it's true. It's very sad, but it's true. A person does not make Torah. And not only Torah, but a Torah that actually helps people. Their number one investment is a person that has to ask themselves, why are they celebrating Chanukah? Because they're doing the same thing that the Greeks did. They're investing into this world. Now, one of the ugliest things that the Greeks did, one of the ugliest things, is to tell us that we can't say HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name because they wanted us not to say blessings, not to say Amen. And today, Rabotai, you have to remind people to do a blessing before they eat. Did you say Shakol? You say, Mezanot, oh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah, I'll do it after, I'll do it after. Wait, so you ate already and you haven't even said thank you to Hashem? Yeah, after, after, oh, yeah, I forgot, I forgot. Imagine if a Kadosh Baruch forgot to give you food for a day. Imagine he forgot and he just simply didn't have food in the world for you. You forgot to say thank you. You ate already, you forgot to say thank you. And Chash Shalom, you mentioned to the guy that he has to say, Birkat Amazon. Rabbi, I think this is Mezonot. Do I really still need to do Birkat uh, Mezon? What do you mean it's Mezonot? It's bread. How is it Mezonot? Listen, Rabbi, I'm in a hurry. I'm in a hurry. Can I, is there a short version of Birkat Mezon? I don't know. I think to myself all the time that it's amazing to me, more than anything else, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't give certain people poverty. It's like they know they have to say thank you, but they only want to say the short version of thank you. They'll dafka not eat bread because they don't want to thank Hashem. They'll dafka on purpose not eat a real meal because they don't want to thank Hashem for more than a minute. It's amazing to me that a Kadosh Baruch Hu simply doesn't just impoverish those people. How much mercy a Kadosh Baruch Hu has, much more than men, much more than I can even imagine. But in reality, there are certain people in the world that will not eat bread because they don't want to say thank you to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for more than a couple of minutes because that's because of the Muslim. They don't want to. It's amazing to me that Hashem will say, you know what, you want to say thank you to me? How about this? I'm not going to give you food anymore. How about that? You're going to eat like uh, Holocaust victims. How about that? Then you'll remember to say thank you. 
Of course, the Kadosh Bochu doesn't think like me. Thank God, he doesn't think like me. But it's amazing to me that that's the case. If a person doesn't even know to, that he's supposed to say thank you, he's like a pig that just eats and eats and eats whatever comes to him. Honestly, that person has more of an excuse than the person that knows he's supposed to say thank you, but he only wants to give the short thank you. Of course, the other person's also wrong for not saying thank you at all. He should say thank you for obviously for everything that he has. But this person just lives in a generation of entitled people. They think everything is supposed to be theirs. And sometimes they think that this it's the rabbi's job to pacify them. Like this young man sends me a uh, request, says to me, listen, can you, if I give you $180 to send somebody to Kever Rachel, can you have them pray for me that uh, I'm going to be six feet three inches tall have a great hair forever and never go bald i'm gonna live a long life and uh, i'm also gonna have a uh, beautiful jawline be physically built great health and i'll have a wife that fits my standards physically and uh and also mentally and spiritually and uh can you can you do that for me for $180? Obviously, I said no. And then he started saying, okay, can I just get this for $180? I said, no, 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 nothing, nothing. None of the requests I can say yes to. We're not gonna pray for you to be a certain physical status or a uh, to have a wife that a certain physical status or or to, we're not gonna pray for that. We're not praying for people to be Greeks. You could be Greek by yourself. You don't need my help for that. You have not learned any of our Torah, therefore you think you can buy us with $180. We don't want that kind of money. Go to some reform guy that's going to take money and tell you whatever you want. But unfortunately, I will tell you, people are so delusional today that they don't know right or left. They don't know up and down. Needless to say, they think God owes them something, that if they give his Torah a few shekels, He's going to give them the right this, the right that, this, that, the other thing. Needless to say, when Hashem actually gives them what they want, they still forget Him. As it says in Sefer Dvarim, after I give you the food to eat and satiate you, don't forget me. Why? It's within human nature to forget Hashem after we get what, what, he, what, what, he, what we want. This is even more of a reason of why we need to not forget him. If you have an opportunity to eat bread and therefore say Birkat Amazon, or not eat bread and not say Birkat Amazon, it behooves you to say to eat the bread and say Birkat Amazon. Yes, it'll take longer. But it's worth it to eat the bread for the sake of praying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu longer. And saying thank you to HaKadosh Baruch Hu even longer. Because that's one thing that distinguishes you from the Greeks. That either don't pray at all or they pray so short that you're not really sure whether it's a prayer or simply they sneezed.
we see Rabotai that when it came to saying prayers, saying Amen, all that stuff, these are all logical things. But they haven't necessarily touched the nerve with everybody yet. Until we got to the issues of where the women were obligated to go and be with the Greeks before they got married to the Jewish guy. Now this, of course, bothers everybody that hears it. If you're about to marry some tzaddikah, and she says, listen, I want to marry you, but uh, I got to go and uh, Marcus over there, Marcus Aurelius over there, I got to go hang out with them for a little while, and then I'll be back. We'll go to Amitra to Chupa. The thought of this makes your head want to explode. That she has to go with some Marcus before she gets married. Who can live with such a thing? Right? Can't live with such a thing that a woman's going to be with somebody else before she gets married. Right? So how come it's so common that the girls and the guys feel at home with testing the grounds with different people before getting married? Why does she think that it's okay to be with somebody before she gets married to him. Why does he think it's okay for him to be with somebody's before he eventually picks a wife? Why does the world look at it as it's not a big deal rather than looking at it as it's a disgrace? You see, Rabotai, we see the clearly how wrong it is for the Greeks to decree that a woman has to be with some Greek before she gets married to a Jew because we see, we figure it's against her will, right? And we're not really always understanding how do you compare that's against her will, she's with a Greek before she, but when she really wants to marry a Jew, how do you compare that to some girl being promiscuous today before she gets married or some guy being promiscuous today before he gets married? How do you compare the two? You compare the two because they're exactly the same. You see, if this girl, if she's not an outright zona, and she's just a normal girl that simply thinks it's okay to be with some guy before she gets married, that's only because she's assuming she's going to marry this guy. It's only because she's looking for a serious relationship. No normal girl is ever going to be with the guy just because. She's assuming something will develop out of this. If she knows for sure that this guy is going to throw her out like a bag of rotten food, for sure she won't even spend a minute with him. If she's a normal girl and she knows this guy is like a Greek, that as soon as he gets his way, he's going to throw her out like garbage, she won't even look his way. So of course it's the same exact thing as the Greek decree. When you're promiscuous and you allow yourself to be with somebody whether you're a male with a female or women with a male whatever it is and you allow yourself to be with somebody before marriage it's exactly like the greek decree why because since it's not going to lead to marriage and you're assuming that it can had you known that it won't for sure had you known that they're going to throw you out like garbage you wouldn't do it and therefore after the fact it's always against your will 
It's always against your will, especially since it becomes addictive, both physically and mentally. And you end up wasting a lot of your time with people that simply take advantage of you, both physically and mentally. But it's your fault. You put the evil Greek decree on yourself. You view the Greek decree as repulsive and disgusting. And you didn't see that you're putting that evil decree of disgusting nature on yourself when you are with somebody before they get married. I always tell both the boys and the girls that contact me that are dating someone serious and they're about to get married, whether it's a week later, a month later, or six months. Not really sure why people delay things so long, but I tell them, listen, until you have a ketubah in your hand and you're married after the, the chuppah, you are complete strangers. You're not allowed to look at her a certain way, not allowed to touch her. You're complete strangers, regardless of what you did until this point. You're complete strangers. Don't act like you're married. Because acting like you're married to somebody before you're actually married is putting the Greek decree on yourself. And needless to say, putting that Greek decree on somebody else. And if you were with somebody and then threw her out, what makes you think that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not going to give you the same punishment and have somebody do that to your daughter in the future? Oh, you didn't think about that, did you? Because you're only 20 and you only think things that are 20 minutes later. As you get older, you start thinking about things that are a little longer than 20 minutes later, maybe 20 years later. But a smart person will start thinking about the future today. Whatever you bring to this world, the Kadosh Baruch is going to bring you right back. Even the Goim know that this exists and they call it karma. The Torah calls it measure for measure. If you're a promiscuous man, you can be certain that unless you do very, very serious tshuva, and even then, it's very likely that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to do the same thing to you. Make you feel that same pain that that girl or those parents or both felt when you threw somebody out after using their body to your likings. Same thing with women and same thing with young and old. When people are promiscuous, they're bringing evil to the world, needless to say, to their life. And the Greeks knew exactly what they were doing when they instituted this. Because since they heard different aspects of the oral Torah from Jews that went against the Torah, they also heard about what it says in Tikkun Zohar, Tikkun number 70. It says that there are certain neshamot that come from the Sitra Achra and thereby have certain inclinations that are the opposite of what is normal. He feels like a she. She feels like a he. They feels like they want they. Instead of a just a person, they want people or animals, all types of strange desires. Zohar says, these people 
came from a intimate act that was between a man and a nida. She was his wife, but she didn't go to the mikveh. She didn't keep talat mishpacha. Or she was a goya, a Jew and a non-Jew. Or she was a shifcha. She was a maidservant. She was an underling. She was a secretary. She was somebody that was under his control. Or she was a zona. She was a promiscuous woman. Whether prostitute or simply a woman that was not married to him. She's considered a zona. A woman that has intimacy without being married is considered according to the Torah zona. And then the Shema that will come out of that woman will certainly be one of those that is likely to be a problematic neshama that could have strange inclinations, strange desires, difficulty when it comes to Torah, and a hurdle to overcome in order to do tshuva. But nonetheless, each neshama that comes to the world with those strange inclinations, or with difficulties and so on, is also given the strength to overcome them. And I've seen with my own eyes of how people that were born with certain strange inclinations overcame those inclinations, overcame their distaste for holiness, and become holy people. Not once, not twice, not five times or ten times. I've seen it many times with people that have done serious tshuva, and Baruch Hashem, some of them, many to our shurim, after serious dedication, they completely became holy people. That at times I would ask them for blessings. But nonetheless, those people had to overcome a very, very difficult hurdle because their parents wanted to act like horses. The Greeks wanted everybody to be like the children of horses. Let the Greeks do what they want to do. Why are you helping them by being promiscuous? Why are you helping them by promoting promiscuity and having it on your screen? Showing your children all types of promiscuous movies. Showing your children all types of promiscuous shows. Showing your children and your wife and your husband and everybody in your household. All types of things that promote promiscuity. Why are you promoting Greek methodology and yet expecting your family to remain preserved it's important for us to know that we're bringing these greek decrees on ourselves when it comes to the mikveh ami said that remained strong was willing to get the death penalty and still send their wives to the mikveh because they knew that there was no other way for them to be together there was no other way for them to reproduce there was no other way for them to live together without the wife being pure unfortunately today according to a study that was done in 2017 according to the gregorian calendar about the modern orthodox community only 50 percent of women in the modern Orthodox community, go to the mikveh, which means that nearly half of the 
children that are coming out of the modern Orthodox community, half of them are coming from a Nida. Half of them are coming from a Zona. Half of them are coming from a forbidden relationship. Half of them. Is anybody surprised of why there are so many heretics in the world and so many atheists and so many people that are promoting all types of agendas that are against human nature? If you want good to be in the world, you have to start by producing it. You have to produce good. Kadosh Baruch did not have any investments in pools when he made the laws of Tarat uh, Mishpacha and uh, obligation to go to the mikveh. He's not an investor in the uh, mikveh companies. He did it because he knew that's the way to produce purity in the world. When a person does not view mikveh as an important time in the family's life each month, not just the husband's, not just the wife's, but the family's life, the family's future, they need to, at the very least, invest some time to learn more about this mitzvah and realize what they're missing out on. We have a video on our channel about the uh, both scientific uh, findings about the the issues of uh, of a mikveh that was uh, made years ago by uh, Rabbi Yuval Ovadia, and also there is a uh, a book that our own uh, Rabbanit uh, Shulamit Kachlon wrote about the issues of Tarat Mishpacha. She's been a Balanit for almost forty years all types of stories that we got from different uh, students she has, students of our own, different people, wrote how many miracles they had as a result of keeping Tarat Mishpacha going to the mikveh. A person that does not observe this mitzvah of Tarat Mishpacha, which is only for married people, a person that does not observe this mitzvah is simply living a Greek life. Why are you celebrating Hanukkah if you're acting like a Greek? And this is not to encourage Greek lives and discourage celebrating Hanukkah. It's a rebuke that's coming from pain to see that a lot of people are doing things to themselves and not realizing that they're doing it. The whole issue of Ketubah Botai Karim is the last thing that we talked about tonight and the last thing we'll talk we'll finish off with today Ketubah is supposed to be a agreement that you make in order to remind yourself of your obligation but today it's turned into a big business people are so enamored with materialism that before they even get married they have to make all these arrangements who's gonna you're gonna pay this you're gonna pay that if you don't pay this we're not getting married if you're not gonna pay that we're not getting married you have to buy this she has to buy that pretty much both party both both sides of the family are barely closing the month but they both expect the other side to be a millionaire in order to pay for all these different things on top of that people that do have a few dollars they want to make sure they're protected from everything. Listen, if 
You didn't come into this relationship with anything. You're going to leave with nothing too if you leave. Already they're thinking about getting out of the relationship before they even started. Now of course, again, a person needs to be smart and not expose themselves to risk. Be smart about certain things. But if you don't trust this person you're about to marry, why are you marrying them? If you're already married, why do you have two different accounts? Separate accounts are for separate people. If you're a family, there's a single account. If you're a family, there's no secrets. If you're a family, you make decisions as a family. But unfortunately today, money has become such a big thing that the Ketubah is the beginning of many, many agreements that will follow. 90% of fights in families are about money. Why don't you fight with him about him learning more Torah? Why don't you fight with her about being more modest? Why don't you fight with him more about him dedicating more Torah to Shil Torah? Spend some time learning. Spend some time connecting with the rabbi. Spend some time learning Musa. Why don't you fight about that? Why don't you fight with her about learning more Musa, more Torah? Why is all the fights about money? Don't you think that if you fought about things that are more meaningful, perhaps the things that are less meaningful will be worked out by Hashem? Or you think it's a fantasy? Well, the Mishnah in Avot says, it's our critical foundation of our old Torah, in the name of Rabbi Shimon Ba Yochai. Anyone who takes on himself the burden of Torah, Kadosh who takes away from them the burden of the government. Meaning, you learn more Torah, Kadosh Baruch will take more of the responsibilities of this world. I.e., you learn more Torah, you work on yourself more to serve Hashem better, Hashem will take away some of your money problems. If each wife would argue as much about her husband learning more Torah as she does about getting a new car or a new fridge or a new vacation, we'd have a lot more tzaddikim in the world and tzaddikot in the world. But if you view the Ketubah as a business agreement from day one, and that's how your life is operated, it's all based on business, it's all based on money, your Shulchan Shabbat has more business talk on it than Wall Street desks, then you're not going to have a very successful life, and needless to say, your kids are not going to be very much different than the Greeks. We have many other decrees that the Greeks put onto the Jewish people, but as you can already see, the first eight that they passed on us that nearly destroyed the Jewish people are still nearly destroying the Jewish people today. But not because the Greeks are putting a sword to our necks and enforcing it, rather because we are forcing it on ourselves by not learning Torah and by simply adapting to the Greek laws without ever checking what the Jewish laws are first. During this Hanukkah, I highly recommend that each and every one of us spend some more time learning more Torah. Learn what makes you Jewish. Learn about what it is to be Jewish. 
why is it that the Jewish people are compared to oil why are we compared to orange juice why are we compared to candy we're compared to to oil while the Torah is compared to water anytime you have water you'll see that the water travels to the lowest point the Torah travels to to the person that's most humble oil on the other hand no matter where it is and who's next to it it'll constantly remain separate from it it'll constantly remain separate from it the Jewish people are supposed to be separate from the gleam thereby they're supposed to be like oil separate from everybody else don't be like everybody else don't act like them don't look like them don't want to be them how can I do such a thing you use the Torah to humble yourself and the more humble you are the more you'll become different than the rest of the world around you Bezat Hashem will see each other again later this week to go over more of the decrees and perhaps learn more of what makes us Jewish, not just today, but also what will make us Jewish and our kids Jewish tomorrow. Thank you very much for learning with me. who bless each and every single one of you to serve Hashem at the highest possible level, sanctify His name, and Bezat Hashem get all of the miracles that He already wants to bring to you in your life in the merit of this Hanukkah. Call to Bachalaslacha. אני מברך את הרבנים, הרב ירון ראובן, הרב אפרים כחלון, ראשי ארגון בעזרת השם, שהלכו בפעליון, שעלו מעלה מעלה, יהיה להם ברכה והצלחה, הקדוש ברוך הוא ימלא משונות ליבם, לטובה ולברכה, שבכל אשר יפנו, ישכילו ויצליחו, ישכילו עוד לעשות כאלה וכאלה, הודיעו תורה לאדירה, אמן ואמן. הוא היהודי הזה, הוא היה מיליונר, סגר את כל הביזנס, אמר אני משקיע פה בעולמה של תורה. איפה הוא גר? בפלורידה. פלורידה, איפה זה פלורידה? באמריקה. כן, ליד. אנחנו שם עכשיו הולכים להקים קהילה ספרדית גדולה. קהילה ספרדית גדולה.